Hello, and welcome to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. This podcast feed shares Socratic dialogue with invisible partners and allies, where we discuss and challenge our values and principles, and have honest discussions about the world. We hope that in doing so, we can see things outside of our plain sight with 2020 vision. Let's go. Hi, Haley. Hi, Francis. I'm excited to do this. I'm somewhere between excited and nervous. Terrified? Yeah. Well, you've got a dangerous conversational partner. I do. Can I start with a question? You can. Why do you trust me? Ooh, that's a great question. I trust you because I feel like you I feel like you actually know me. And I think that makes it easier. That just makes it easier to trust you. Funny enough, when I was getting my fake PhD a couple years ago, I ended up doing a, a multi-month study of passion, purpose, belonging, and agency. And one of the things that came up is people trust you and they believe that you are competent and that you are on their team. And so I feel like, because you know me, I feel like I trust you to be on my team. And then competence means I trust you to do what you say. There was a lot there. Yeah. Keywords actually know me. Fake PhD. Yeah. Passion, purpose, belonging, agency, competent on my team. Okay. Can you help me unpack this? for our audience who has not had the pleasure of knowing Haley for how long have I known you? Three years. How many years? I think it was maybe four. I met you, I believe around six months before my birthday that year, the birthday where you met Marshall. And that was 2018, I believe, right? Or 2019, 2018 or 19. I think I met you in 2018. And and that was the 2019 birthday. 2019. Wait, so less than six months later, we were traveling around the world and going to Manila and Nairobi and Florianopolis. Yep. You had known me for about a year at that point, and you trusted me enough to go on that trip. Yep. For context audience, this brave young lady, whom I consider to be one of my best friends and a chosen sister, and whom I actually believe loves me and I love her. We had only known each other for one year before she decided to work with me and travel with me and one other guy who happened to be my cousin, (laughs) who's also on our team and his name is Cameron. So we traveled across three continents, four continents really, because we came from a continent. In one year, we built enough trust to do that. Wow. And now it's been quite a while since then, because that was at the end of 2019. So 2020, 2021, 2022 is coming up. So it's been about almost four years now, I guess, Uh, one four year term. So let's unpack all these fake PhD. What? I had a job in a youth development company. It was developing curriculum for high schoolers, helping them essentially develop and then act on a dream because it understood the act of bringing a dream into reality as the fundamental developmental milestone that most people never experience. And so its goal was to basically scale that experience and make it a normal part of growing up, that there's something you want that maybe you think you can't have happen. And then you just practice wrapping reality meat on the bones of possibility. And in order to do that, I was on sort of the curriculum development team. And curriculum here doesn't necessarily mean curriculum like the way that 
you know, in a school, you would have like a really structured curriculum. It means like more of a curriculum of life where someone's sort of designing experiences for you that help you develop competencies. And so as part of that, I had this massive literature review I was doing where I was kind of tearing through everything that psychology understood about meaning, belonging, passion, purpose, agency. And what Olivia brought up, what you asked really leans into the belonging piece, what makes people feel a sense of belonging. And it's this feeling that people trust you to be on their team and to be true to what they say. Yeah. As usual, talking to Haley is whatever the dream equivalent is of the nightmare of the Hydra, because every single time you talk to her, like from that one thing springs three things to talk about. And that is why I will never finish talking to this person and she will never cease to surprise me, (laughs) which by the way, if I may go on a brief tangent, may I go on a tangent, Haley, before I continue to interview you? I consider this entirely tangents with good edits. Go on. (laughs) Exactly. Well, trust is the anchor point in this conversation. So I've thought about the mystery of conversations and you've heard me say this before, but the audience hasn't. So pretend like it's the first time you're hearing a good joke, which is this. The reason why we bother to have conversations with each other is because we don't know in advance what the other person is going to say. I have a little Haley in my head and I can consult that little Haley anytime I wonder, "Hmm, what would Haley say about this or that? It's almost like my Haley conscience. But my Haley conscience is not the same thing as talking to real Haley. Real Haley is dynamic and dangerous and full of surprises and not a tame Haley. And real Haley is evolving and I'm co-evolving with her. And so every conversation that you are seeking, if there's anyone that you're seeking to have a conversation with, whether it's a lover or a potential lover, like a first date or a family member, that there's something important you wish you could speak to them about, or a coworker or potential coworker, or any conversation that you are actively seeking. If you're actively seeking even a single conversation with another human, it contains the element of surprise. It is a dangerous encounter. You do not know what the other person is going to say. And so releasing the other person into their yeah, wilderness, 100%. allowing the conversation to surprise you and being comfortable with that is part of the art of conversation. Sorry for that derail, but that's an important that's concept. That's not a derail. All right. Well, think, it is uh, because we're mid-fake PhD here and we're going to get to the bottom of this. You basically got a fake PhD in, if you were to pick the subject, what's the subject? A fake PhD in, it's not behavioral economics. Yeah. What is it? Fake PhD It's like in, everything difficult to quantify that we all know matters. Ooh. See, Haley speaks so fast because she's from Georgia. And in Georgia, oh, yeah. they rattle it off, you know? It's kind of like when you think you've learned Spanish because you went to Spanish class in an American high school and then you step off the plane in Mexico City and everyone's like, and it's like, oh my gosh, I don't speak that well. Haley makes my mind race when I talk to her. All right, so slow down. Okay. You got a fake PhD in what now? Things people agree are important, but hard to quantify. Important, but hard to quantify. So- Forgive me, but if I was managing the graduation ceremony at your university, I don't know what I would announce. And ladies and gentlemen, we've got oh, yeah. Haley Darn getting her fake PhD in everything that is important but hard to quantify. Actually, what is no, the subject? Let me, let me think about it. Let me think about it. Because I actually those were all actually discrete areas of mm-hmm. inquiry. And I don't know that someone's challenged me to unify them, right? Into like 
why were these discrete bits important to the whole and what was that whole? And I suppose I'd call it jumpstarting realization or jumpstarting actualization. We have to get accredited with the Department of Education and we need one word to get your PhD in. Fine. I think I'd choose actualization, but I might edit to becoming. Actualization. Okay. Now, I know that certain members of the audience are like, oh, you're a great question asker. It's been a minute since like, I'm kind of really enjoying this. Okay, Mm -hmm. go on. Well, now, if I may, I'd like to speak to those members of the audience. And I know you are out there who are giving this podcast a shot, but you are watching your clock and you're like, is this worth it? Shall I go to the end? I don't know. What kind of a conversation is this? And are these people for real? Are we going to talk about prancing unicorns bouncing around on clouds? What sort of a meta conversation? We're having a conversation about trust. That sounds like philosophical. It sounds sort of unpractical. Is this worth my time? I know that you're out there and I know that you're questioning whether you should keep listening. And Haley just stepped on a landmine, which is a PhD in actualization. What? That does sound like a fake PhD, in fact. And yeah. may I defend, may I defend the legitimacy of her degree, which is I learned something this morning while I was reconnecting with a friend of mine who recently got her PhD. And she is from South Africa and she studied in Europe. And so we were connecting early this morning because of time zones. I'm in New York. And she and her name, appropriately enough, was Sophia. And Sophia means wisdom. I said, Sophia, I forgot. What does PhD mean again? And I looked it up on Google. And one of my favorite things to do in any conversation is to slow it down and to start defining words. So all I did was type PhD definition in Google. And Haley, would you read what comes up? A doctorate in any discipline except medicine or sometimes theology. But a PhD is what? The academic degree, title, or rank of doctor of philosophy. Doctor of philosophy. Isn't that fascinating? So even if you got a PhD in behavioral economics, like my friend, or a PhD in biology, all PhDs Every single PhD, except, except medical doctors, except for medicine and sometimes theology, but in every subject except for medicine and theology, if you get a PhD, it is a doctor of philosophy. That's so, fascinating. Francis, so, why do you think that is? Well, I was going to ask you because you're the one with the fake PhD in actualization. <laughs> Which is ridiculous if you're like a 2D practical person. A better way to think of that versus like a PhD is everything people should have included in an onboarding to the human experience. Yes. Yes. Nailed it. Nailed it. Have you ever had moments where you're just a mystery to you and you're like, why is this motivating? Why is this not motivating? Or even when maybe you have a goal, but you work against yourself on that goal. There's just so much that's understood about humans as creatures. Conversation actually being an enormous part of that. Conversation has a really critical role in how we develop even the ability to think at all. There's a connection, Haley says, between conversation and thinking. The better you learn the art of conversation, the better you learn how to think. That is a fascinating claim. And you know who else agrees with Haley? Socrates. And so much of the Platonic dialogues are actually about 
the meta conversation, the conversation about conversations. And that is the mission of this podcast. And so our primary audience actually in this podcast are not philosophical people. I'm trying to reach pragmatic people who are about to turn off this podcast and never listen to it again. But you gave it a shot, maybe because a friend sent it to you. One of those annoying, idealistic, philosophical friends who likes having abstract conversations <laughs> sent it to you and somehow got you to listen this far and you're just a few minutes in and you're already triggered because what is the point of having a conversation about conversations? What is the point of all of this philosophical stuff? After all, we are interested in money and power. Use and value. What about we sex? We want to solve problems. Sex, sex, yeah. Yeah, we are a New Yorker. You're a New Yorker like me. You want beauty, brains, and bucks. This is the stuff you really care about, right? And we're going to talk a lot about New Yorkers whenever we're trying to speak to this type of person because if it doesn't make sense to a New Yorker, we're not doing a good job as translators. So I'm going to speak using a quote from a very practical person that all pragmatic people admire if they value pragmatism at all. Someone who's highly effective, highly efficient, so efficient, in fact, he conquered the world. And his name was Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon. One day, a journalist at Le Monde said, Monsieur Napoleon, j'ai une question, s'il vous plaît. I've got a question, Napoleon. If you could wish anything, anything for France, anything that would help you build this empire, Mr. Napoleon, what would you wish for? Do you know what he said? No, what did he say? Better mothers. Wow. Better mothers. What? Why? Why? I don't know. Maybe he was trying to get votes for Mother's Day. No, because he was a dictator. He didn't need votes, especially for mothers. Back then, this was pre-equality, pre-sexual equality and, and the politics of sexual equality. This is the politics of the French Revolution. Why would he say that? Because he's right. Because he thought about this question because he was a strategist par excellence. And as a strategist, he understood. He knew Cicero's line, the sinews of war are infinite money. He knew the value of infinite money. Money was not the blocker. He also was one of the most charismatic leaders of all time. In fact, do you know the story? This is a further discursion. Humor me, please. It's worth it. Do you know the story of what happened when he escaped from the island of Elba? No. That island was like a maximum security prison guarded by the British. And somehow this fox of a fox, <laughs> having already been defeated and been put on this prison by very, very polite Brits who refused to execute him because after all, he was a monarch. And they were so polite and gentlemanly. So they put him on an island and surrounded that island with their navy so that he could never get out. Somehow, he manages to get out and he lands on the shore. So they send an army led by British officers, but of French soldiers, France, which was controlled by a protectorate at the time, to intercept him. When that army goes to arrest him and put him in handcuffs again, he says, my brothers, you know me. And then they all turned coats and became his army. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa is right. We're talking about one of the most charismatic people of all time. We are talking about Jedi master level. You attack me with your army. Guess what? It's my army. Okay. We're talking about that level of leader. 
This is a historical leader. The line from Tolkien, history became legend and legend became myth. And for two and a half thousand years, some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. Napoleon, as most sane, practical, secular, materialist New Yorkers like me believe, was a real person. He actually did the things that the history books say. He's okay. not made up. Okay. And that guy was, when he was asked, what is the single thing you wish you had? The single asset. He said. Yeah. More mothers. No, not better more. Mother. Not better. more. Better. 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 better mothers. Why? Because of what you said, Haley, onboarding to the human experience. Yeah. If you can change people's yeah. onboarding, if you can onboard people into the human experience through conversations, which is how every mother and every father teaches every child through talking to the child and through being with the child, because the conversations are a medium for action. Actions and words always go together. And actions and words not only build trust, they build the world of the child. Yes. They help create the myth that the child is living in and inhabiting. And if you could optimize the onboarding to the human experience, you would build an unstoppable army, which is yeah, what Napoleon true. wanted. That's true. So Francis, can I hit you with a quote that I think you'll find interesting? Hit me with it. So this is something, well, actually, I'm going to give you an original Haley Darden quote. I'll say one thing about a fake PhD and why someone should not undertake it. And it is because there's a culture in academia where you're sort of not allowed to say what you actually think. You're yes. only allowed to say what you can evidence. And so the amount of effort it takes to get a synthesis out is quite a lot. But there's a lot of work in a subfield of psychology, the name of which I'll have to remember. But in any case, there's a lot of evidence that conversation is not the result of thinking, but that rather conversation is the primary means of cognitive and emotional development for our species, which is wild. And then this one is wow. a direct quote from a research paper by a guy in Europe who's really passionate about oracy. So he basically contends that in the tradition of Socrates, that like dialogue is a critical part of education and that Ooh. following an obsession with the written word, almost our relationship, actually, this is me expounding on the context of his argument, but he's mm. arguing that literacy has been championed at the expense of oracy mm. and that we lack an understanding of how significant oracy is in human development in terms of our ability mm. to, to understand things and to deal with, you know, Francis thinks you talk about a lot, clashes, paradoxes, et cetera. And this is a quote from a research paper of his in many continental European countries, teachers readily assert that their job is to intervene decisively in the process of development and to use talk to get children to think. Teachers are also part of the onboarding experience of human existence. So if we want to like thread that together, right, we have, I'm just sort of tracking our conversation because I also think like part of the beginning may be a bit exploratory. And then as we get a bit further in, we may kind of find the thread. This idea of like conversation as part of what onboards you to the human experience feels like, you know, one thread where there's my fake PhD, there's mothers, there's teachers. And here, what he's emphasizing is the value of talk to enable thinking. We are in deep territory. There's so much. This is so fertile. I want to call a few things out. Intervene decisively. 
intervene decisively, an intervention. Guess what, audience? We are the intervention and we're intervening for you. We want to be a cultural intervention. That is the purpose of this podcast. We're trying to intervene, slow it all down, pause, and realize a few things that are very mysterious and very powerful and very incredible. We are speaking with words. Every word has an etymology. You're going to look up some etymologies on this podcast and your minds are going to be blown. But the meanings of words, when you trace them back, it's almost like, has anyone ever played that Wikipedia game where you and I start on the same page? Let's just say we start on the page for the plant iris, the iris plant. And we're playing a game where who can get to Ferrari first, the Ferrari page, like Ferrari, the car, and how many clicks is it going to take them, right? Have you ever played that game? It's so fun. It's all you need is two people with screens, with Wikipedia to play the game. And it's so fun. So this game, and it turns out, of course, the point of the game is that every page on Wikipedia is ultimately linked to every other page. Wait a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on. How? How is that possible? How could every page ultimately? Is everything connected? Wait. No way. Wait. Is everything connected through words? What? Did Wikipedia know this? And that's why they created a dictionary called Wikitionary that you can find etymologies in? No way. Okay. So that. And then... Haley mentioned Socrates, who is kind of a, I mean, let's be real. He's kind of a messianic figure for philosophers in general. And he died for his beliefs. To die for your beliefs is next level, next level commitment. And Socrates was big on this meta conversation about words. And what Haley just said that literacy is championed at the expense of oracy is the subject of the conversation that is recorded in the dialogue known as Gorgias. Oh, no way. I didn't know that. It is that. And specifically, the paradox of memory is in the the dialogue called the Meno. And the paradox of memory is, how is it that we learn anything at all? How exactly does learning occur? And it's very similar to the mystery of conversations. The mystery of conversations and the mystery of learning are related mysteries. Socrates was fascinated by them. And I would love if you, if you humor me, I would love to tell you a little bit about what he thought. But yes. That's Haley, a, yeah. Why does it matter to have conversations about conversations? After all, I'm a New Yorker. I know. Right. And you just care about money, sex, and power. And like conversation uh-huh. is one of those things, though it can be a helpful tool for all of them. I think we underappreciate in a world where so much information exchange is very shallow and where there's more information than there's ever been. We don't appreciate the extent to which true conversation, and we can talk through what that is and the etymology of the word conversation, is the primary mechanism by which humans are onboarded into this life experience humans self-update. So you think about times you've had an incredible learning, right? It usually came from feedback that like finally got to you 
in a new way or words, language that helped you understand something differently, right? So conversation is how we run updates on ourselves. And then conversation is also how we expand our capacity. So the ability to form trust relationships with other people, per Olivia's quote, to get other people on board with our visions, our missions, and even to coordinate, like that's really more about communication and those mechanics, but getting someone on board or signed up is still really in this realm of conversation. So I would say like, why does it matter to have a conversation about conversations? Maybe we've lost the depth of skill needed to onboard people into this life experience to update and to expand. (laughs) Haley, I don't think you realize you are the cheetah of conversations and there's no animal known to man that can keep up with you. That is a land animal. Thankfully, you're a sea animal. Or are you a mermaid? No. Look. I can't see what that is. Is that a whale? No. You're a genie. Is that a genie? Is that a lamp? Why can't I see? You fly? You're a flying animal. I'm a falcon. You're a falcon. Okay, this makes sense to me. Apollo's bird. I've always loved falcons. Even when I was a kid, I was obsessed with peregrine falcons. And actually, an omen, a very auspicious omen occurred to me when I was at the New York Botanical Garden this last Sunday. No, Sunday before last. And at sunset, there was a scream and there was a thunderstorm building, but it was just a beautiful day, blue skies, golden light. And at sunset, I I can't imitate it. How can you imitate the cry of a falcon? And it landed on the white spire of the greenhouse, which is spectacular. And there's like lily pads and beautiful lotus flowers. And it looked right at me. It was so special. So I got this ring. I got this falcon ring because I love, I love falcons. Anyways, where were we? You're a cheetah. I just want to summarize. And you're a falcon. Slowly, slowly Slowly. for the audience, all the things you just said so fast. You see, the thing is that Haley's so fast, partly because she's trying to be respectful of your time and just download at like 5 million gigabytes per second, everything she knows from her brain to yours. She's trying to do the next level of conversation, which we'll get to in the season two of this podcast, which will be about telepathy. But while Haley is trying to go at telepathic speeds, I'm going to slow down. Haley just said that there are four things, at least, that conversation does for you, pragmatic unbelieving New Yorker. Number one, onboarding, which every good company needs. Two, updating, which every good piece of software needs. Three, dialectic, debate, which every good government needs. Four, expanding, which every good revenue line needs. So onboarding, updating, dialectic, and expansion, or debate and expansion. And We can dive into all four of those functions. The first, onboarding, is the essence of mythology. Mythology, world building. Even if you don't believe that any myth was ever true, you could still write a children's story, can't you? Just like J.K. Rowling, just like George R.R. Martin, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis. They have all these middle names. I want one. Anyways, if you had awesome middle names, you could write a children's story too, and it would be a myth. And why would you write it? Well, to onboard children into a world where you have created the world and you understand the changes and the dynamics that occur within the world. And you also understand the rebirth of that world. And you're going to take them on a hero's journey. And there are going to be archetypes of different people, the archetype of the hero, the archetype of the villain, the archetype of the wise people that will help them along the way, the archetype of the 
sacred weapon that will allow them to defeat the dragon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of this has been studied within the field of literature by professors like Joseph Campbell and Campbell, cynical New Yorker. Campbell created several billion dollar companies. One of them is known as Star Wars because it was his theories that inspired George Lucas to write that story, which became a multi-billion dollar entertainment franchise, and also so many other stories. So onboarding, number one, first function of conversation. We could talk about how that is, why that is. Updating. It's a sinking. Haley and I are sinking right now and getting into each other's mental world. So if I learn something, it's like if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? If I have a bunch of insights and don't tell anyone, did it matter? Three, debate. Haley can debate me on anything, including what I'm saying right now. Challenge me to a duel, Haley. On guard. On guard. What should we debate? How's debate different from sort of learning, do you think? My position is that it's, if you say it's the same, I say it's different. If you say it's different, I say it's the same. Pick a side. I'll debate either side. Oh, interesting. I think, I think the same. I'll take the position that learning and debate are the same. They are not the same. Okay. Defend your position. You're on the aft team, the affirmative team in debate, and I'm on the negative team. I'm neg. Go. So this is based on one fact, which is that cognitive dissonance is something that drives curiosity and creates learning. So when two things surprise you, they seem like they should match, but they don't, that creates cognitive dissonance. And that's something that our species just kind of gets hooked on and wants to learn more from. And I would consider that dissonance, actually, those two things lined up that don't quite match, is actually at its heart what debate is, which is holding two different things adjacent to each other that have some level of conflict. So I'm going to define debate as conflict abstracted and argue that all learning begins from conflict. Mm, Very good. Pause. What Haley just established is her thesis. My thesis, yes. Right, which is very similar in the scientific method for all you practical people. As you know, the scientific method begins with a hypothesis, which is similar to a thesis within Hegelian dialectic. And in Hegelian dialectic, there's a progression of thought. It goes like this. Thesis, counterthesis, synthesis, countersynthesis, supersynthesis, counter-supersynthesis, super-supersynthesis, and so on and so forth. It's almost like DNA, right? That chain. And because Haley's thesis is about dialectic itself and how dialectic and learning are one, she will allow me to progress her to the counter thesis to that thesis, which is that learning and debate are different in at least one sense. Otherwise, they wouldn't be different words. And that sense is this. At the moment of learning, the moment at which something has been learned, harmony is felt and dissonance is not. Huh. And that is why learning oh, is fun. You have an aesthetic experience. When you finally have that, oh my gosh, I learned something. That moment. If you've ever felt that moment in your entire life, you're like, whoa, whoa, that moment. The reason why that is physically pleasurable is because for a moment, at least, dissonance is gone. 
May I read a quote about learning that is just so good? So good. May I? Yeah. This is from one of my favorite books of all time. And it's a very short paragraph. It's from The Once and Future King by T.H. White. And The Once and Future King is a retelling of the legend of King Arthur. And this is Merlin. So if you don't know who Merlin is, imagine Gandalf or imagine Yoda or imagine some wise old archetype. The best thing, let me see if I get get a good Merlin voice. The best thing for being sad, replied Merlin, beginning to puff and blow, is to learn something. That's the only thing that never fails. You may grow old and trembling in your anatomies. You may lie awake at night, listening to the disorder of your veins. You may miss your only love. You may see the world about you devastated by evil lunatics or know your honor trampled in the sewers of baser minds. There is only one thing for it then, to learn. Learn why the world wags and what wags it. That is the only thing which the mind can never exhaust, never alienate, never be tortured by, never fear or distrust, and never dream of regretting. Learning is the only thing for you. Look what a lot of things there are to learn. Which leads us to Haley's fourth point, expansion. Through the dialectic, there are the moments as you hit each moment in the dialectic, as you move from thesis to counterthesis to synthesis, at every point in which there is learning that occurs, you have a moment of mental expansion. And to share a Gnostic maxim, as within, so without. As within, so without. When your mind expands, your world expands and your wealth and power and sexual attractiveness and all the practical things that you New Yorkers care about. But there are things even that are impractical that you haven't yet learned to care about, but you will expand all of them as your mind expands in those directions. Okay. So I would like to teach the audience how to do a proper etymological word search and to begin to unearth the layers of meanings and words. And the joke is that when people ask me, how many languages do you speak? I say, more than one, but less than half. <laughs> that is funny. And what I mean by that is, I don't even speak English yet. And that's my mother tongue. That's my native tongue. And I've learned a lot of things about other languages too, but I speak them less than half. For English, I speak at least half. And the point there is that language is a very mysterious thing. And we can talk a lot about language and the etymology of even the word language and the etymology of the word word. All of those would be conversations worth having, but we're talking about conversations. So all I did is I used Google to search the Summa Theologica. I mean, to search the database of all all books that we have publicly available to us. And that is what a search engine is and does. And it is a magic wand that all of you wizards, I mean, New Yorkers who don't believe in magic can use anytime. So Google this, Google conversation etymology. Etymology, E-T-Y-M-O-L-O-G-Y, conversation etymology. And you will see this, that it is from the Latin, conversari, conversatio, from Old French through to English, converse, conversation, living among, living among, conversation, living among, familiarity, like family, intimacy, Middle English. Middle English in the sense of living among, familiarity, intimacy via the old French and from Latin. Okay, great. So that's the first thing you did. The second thing you need to do is open Wikipedia's page 
on Wikitionary. That's W-I-K-T-I-O-N-A-R-Y. Wikitionary, the free dictionary by Wikipedia, and look up the term conversation. So that would be n.wikitionary.org slash wiki slash conversation. Okay, on that page, you will see a deeper etymology, which will repeat what we've already said. And so I'm not going to read everything on this page. I'm just going to focus on a few things. The Latin declensions, including converser, converser, a converser. So you're a converser and I'm a converser. We're conversing. We're conversing in this conversation. Converser. What is converser? Converser, this word converser. Huh. It comes from converser, to dwell or be busy. To have a conversation is to converse with someone, to be intimate, to almost be in their family, to dwell with them, mm. and to be busy with them. We are doing business when we are conversing. Every time you converse with anyone, you're doing business with them. So you New Yorkers want to be good businessmen and women. So here we go. What are the four tenses of the verb? The tense in which we ponder together. Ponder is in muse. Is in, hmm, I wonder. I wonder. Pondering. We're almost like walking in the garden. We're pondering. I wonder. I wonder. What about this? What about that? Hmm. I consort or associate with. I'm scheming with you. I'm associating with you. You and I have some sort of relationship and we are relations of a kind and we're consorting. There's something very intimate about the fact that we're doing business together. Three, I abide or dwell with. We are spending time together. Time, the most precious thing. And time, the same way time is necessary for music. Otherwise, there's no space between the notes. I just clapped twice. And to clap, you see, I'm separating the notes. And if I can create a beat, it's through the spaces between the sounds. It's not just the sound making, it's also the silence making that is creating the noise. And so when we're conversing, we are making music. And so that is why all conversation is a form of singing. We are singing together and there are singing languages, Swedish, Chinese, Italian, that are exceptionally sonic, exceptionally vocare, vocational, exceptionally cantare, exceptionally encanted and enchanting, exceptionally songful languages, where when people abide in conversation, it is almost like they are singing to each other. And that is because words are beautiful. And we are always reminding each other through the conversation, the meaning of words, we are always remembering, which we're going to come back to when we talk about the meno. And then lastly, when we are talking, when we are in conversation, we are talking about life. Otherwise, why would we be talking? You're always talking about life, no matter what you're talking about. Otherwise, there's no point. If there is a point to the conversation, including the point of nonsense, of enjoying nonsense, you're doing it and you're spending your life doing it. <laughs> you're spending your life talking about life. You're singing about life. You're talking about life. And you're doing it, spending your time with someone else. So you're doing it while living your life. So Haley and I right now are choosing to set aside some sacred time to sing to each other and to sing to you about life. And you're setting aside that sacred time and you are in conversation with us because you, by spending the time you're spending listening to us, are consorting and associating with us, are pondering with us, are choosing to go on this wandering, meandering exploration of the meta meaning of conversation. You are joining us on this walk through the garden and you're living your life. 
and you would have ended the podcast right now and switched the channel and moved on to the next thing in your life if you didn't feel like it was worth this many minutes of your time. So conversations, that's an etymology and that's how you do etymology and that's the etymology of conversations. And now we're going to go back to the four tenses that Haley outlined. Haley, what were they again? Onboarding, updating, you said debating. Mm -hmm. Dialectic. Mm -hmm. And expanding. Onboarding, updating, dialectic, and expansion. Onboarding, updating, debate, and expansion. Onboarding, updating, debate, and expansion. Okay. Whoa. So if we were to make that an acronym, O-U-D-E, it's almost like an OODA loop. It's an OODA loop. Hold on, hold on. O-U-D-E? Yeah. OOD. O-U-D-E. Oud, like kind of like that perfume. Okay. So if I was to associate a single classical reference to each of these, I would associate the Gorgias, the Socrates dialogue of the Gorgias, what Socrates was trying to teach us through that dialogue with onboarding. I want to hear one thing about being a person, about your onboarding Mm. human experience Mm -hmm. that you wish you'd learned in some kind of deliberate manner, but that actually you had to learn for yourself. Oh man, she teased me up so well. Uh, You audience people whom I hope I meet, but in case I never meet you, I know you're thinking this thought, which is, man, he's so lucky to be asked such a generous question. Okay. I'm going to tell you a story that actually contains both, both a moment when I was lost and learned to become an autodidact. That means a self-learner, self-teacher. Mm. and a moment when I found a teacher. And this story about my own life, which is really at the heart of knowing me. And so after you know this story, you'll know something about me, really know something about me, which goes back to what Haley said, is that she feels like I know her. I actually know her is one of the first things she said, is because I know things like this about Haley. But if you know this story about me, you'll always have one of my secrets. When I was a child, I was bullied in school. And I was a very earnest child, very sincere. And I'm sure that I made lots of mistakes in my early relationships and conversations with my fellow classmates, but I was a good child and I'm sure they were good too, but for whatever reason, I didn't fit in. But I was strong and charismatic and noticeable. So unlike the nerds who could sort of hide in the corner and escape the bullying, I was always trying to I was so silly. I was always trying to be friends with everybody, (laughs) but I didn't understand the games the popular kids were playing. And they were playing the game of popularity, which is built on exclusion. So I was constantly getting excluded and having my feelings hurt. That was one experience of my childhood. Another experience of my childhood was I was always feeling held back in class because I was so hungry to learn. And I realized that class could only go at the pace of the, the slowest student. And so I was always coming home and telling this to my parents and saying, I want to learn more. I want to learn more. So I was basically, my mother told my dad, why don't you just teach him something? And then we started, he started teaching me Latin because my dad's a nerd (laughs) and I'm very grateful to him, but I was an unsatisfied customer. And I was like, I want more. I want to learn more faster. And I kept saying this and my parents were perplexed and felt guilty and did not know what to do with me. This precocious kid, this precocious and emotionally sensitive kid. So they had their ears open and their eyes open and they started asking their friends. And one of their friends said, why don't you bring him along to this lecture? And that lecture 
was one of the most, the most fateful moments of my life. One of the greatest blessings, one of the things that I will never forget. And that was the day I met Mr. Fritz Henricks, Mr. H. And he was giving a lecture on Homer's Iliad. And I was transported to another world entirely. Mm. And I did not know what was happening. All I knew is that I wanted to spend all my time in that world. I wanted him to show me everything within it. I wanted him to teach me all about these books because if these books were as magical as he made that book sound, oh, I mean, these were realms of gold. They were heroic. It was a myth. The Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, which is where any student should begin learning about ancient Greece, they are a myth. But he didn't just teach me literature. He taught me the classics of philosophy, of geometry, through literally my geometry class was proving through Euclid's elements. So geometry, mathematics, philosophy, science through Aristotle, and poetry. So poetry, philosophy, and he himself was a musician and he, he loved classical music. So the first year of my studies with Mr. H were all about the ancient Greeks. The next year was the Romans. The third year was the medieval scholastics. The fourth year was the Renaissance and the fifth year was the Enlightenment. And I have never stopped, even though that was only a five-year course in the great books of Western civilization, GBT, the great books tutorial, my GBT classes, five years, I never stopped that class. And that's the autodidact part. I have continued. I'm still, I'm in GBT. I guess, let me see. I started when I was 12. I'm 33. So help me do some math, ladies and gentlemen. 18 plus three, 21 years. I'm in GBT 21. And I hope that if you continue listening to this podcast and doing me the honor of trusting me with your time, I would love to introduce you to the same realms of gold I was introduced to. And I would like to invite you to be part of the same conversation because, and this is the, this is the answer to Haley's question, which is a time when I had to teach myself something and also a time when I learned something from someone else, a time when I didn't know what to do, and a time where I was shown what to do, where the guidance came from me and from others and from beyond. And that is the mystery of conversation, is that it's not only that what the other person is going to say is a revelation. I did not prepare the words I'm saying to you right now. I'm speaking without notes. And so is Haley. We are improvising. We are improvising like pros, like professionals. And a revelation is occurring that is a product of both of us and neither of us. I am a mystery to myself. I don't know what I'm going to say in a conversation with Haley. She doesn't know what she's going to say. She's a mystery to me and I'm a mystery to her and I'm a mystery to myself and she's a mystery to myself. And what is appearing through the conversation, which is the conversation of the words, is a revelation, not just to you, audience. I hope it is one to you, but to us. And each word in this conversation is its own branch point to more more discoveries and more riches and more insights and more expansion. So that's my story, Haley. Francis, that is so beautiful. Do you mind if I ask you a few more questions? Thank you so much Go for ahead. sharing. My pleasure. Only if I can ask you a few more questions. You can, but I get to ask you questions first because ladies first. And I know that 
one of your heroes is King Arthur, and I'm pretty sure he was the origin of chivalry. Can you just elaborate it a very little bit? So what I hear in that story, what I love about that story is hearing just the contrast between your life at school, which is theoretically the life of the mind, right? And then Mm -hmm. this like experience that brings you to tears now where suddenly Mm -hmm. you're just so much more alive. Would you tell me a little bit about what was different in the conversations you're engaging in, in school? And then what was the conversation you were having here? Even if it's a conversation you're having with, you know, Odysseus in your own mind. Tell me about the difference and what's discussed and how that feels. Could you synthesize that question so that I'm very clear I want on what you the question contrast is? For me, the kinds of conversations you're having in school mm-hmm. and then the kinds of conversations you were having in this new experience. Oh, the normal school before I began my great books school. Yeah. Okay. I'll start with this. You might be wondering why I keep speaking to New Yorkers. And the answer is... New Yorker is just an archetype of a very practical person. So I'm speaking to practical people who don't believe in fairy tales anymore and don't believe in anything that's impractical or theoretical or philosophical or spiritual at all. And so New Yorkers are just the classic archetype that everyone around the world knows of like really kind of snappy, fast walking, fast talking, hustling people who care about practical things like money, sex, and power. Okay. But I'm really trying to reach the New Yorker everywhere. You could be in Asia, you could be in Africa, you could be in Australia, you could be in South America, you could be in any of the 50 United States, you could be anywhere. And I'm trying to speak to those people. And I'll just say that my my elementary school, both the public one and the private one, because my parents thought maybe that was the problem. Maybe they weren't paying enough money. So they sent me to a private school and paid more. And that wasn't the solution. Both of them were full of kids the children of New Yorkers who were themselves child New Yorkers. I mean, even though I grew up in San Diego, the cultural attitude of America today, and I think of broadly speaking, the world, the cosmopolitan world, the modern world, the cultural attitude of modernity is very two-dimensional. And there are powerful lines of Nietzsche that we can talk about later about the last men. It's sort of about the attitude of modernity. But I'll just say this. Around the time of Christopher Columbus, most Europeans thought the world was flat. So they thought he was literally going to sail off the edge and they thought he was crazy. They did not realize the world was round. And now we're so smart. We've sent men to the moon. We've looked back on our own species from afar. We've seen the pale blue dot. We know that we're in space. We know that we're a sphere. We know that we're a three-dimensional world, not a two-dimensional world. But our world actually hasn't expanded. Even though the Hubble Space Telescope has sent us photos of galaxies far, far away, where Star Wars is happening, (laughs) even even though we have this incredibly expanded cosmology, somehow we've lost something that the medieval, even medieval people had. And that all ancient people had before Columbus, which was a sense of wonder about everything in the world and a sense of mystery and allowing things to be mysterious. And there's a really funny comic, if any of you wants to find it on the internet, called The Fence. And The Fence has four comic drawings of the globe. 
of the earth. And in the first one, it's set in like caveman times, many, many thousands of years ago in BC times. And it has a little fence and the whole world is this giant, scary jungle. And inside of the fence, there are a bunch of humans. They're like, oh, we call it a fence. We built it to keep out the lions and the tigers and all the things that are going to eat us to keep us safe. And then as time passes, the fence gets bigger and bigger and bigger until <laughs> in the last one in modernity, we call it a fence, a nature park. This is where it's a zoo. This is where we keep all the lions and the tigers and the snakes and all the things that are going to eat us. Just, you know, we want to check them out every once in a while because after all, the fence has now expanded to cover the whole world. Like we have trains and planes and cars everywhere. You know, the modern world, we've conquered the world. Even though no one country has conquered the world, humanity, human civilization has conquered the world. If you listen to CNN or the New York Times or any news organization, you're not going to hear about the impending fear that an army of snakes and tigers is going to take over humanity and kill us all. Right? That's not, we're past that. So myth and Arthur. So when Mr. H brought me into the myth of the Iliad, he took me out of the cynical world I was in, which was all about money, sex, and power. And I was an idealistic, romantic child. And I wanted to be told about beauty, goodness, and truth. I wanted to be told about heroes and heroines and villains and lives that mattered and battles that mattered, not just physical battles, but battles of the pen and of the word, battles in the relationships that people have, conflicts and dramas. I wanted to know why all the great people who came before us in human history, why they thought life mattered and what they lived for. And I wanted to have my world remystified and given its dignity back because everyone and everything was living in a fully demystified world. And it was crushing the child in me, even though I was a child. The bullying was not physical. It was spiritual in that sense. Mm -hmm. And something in me wanted to fight back, but it I knew that it wasn't fight. I did martial arts. I did 10 years of martial arts. Nobody can ever bully me again. I'm a black belt. And not just I'm a martial artist. I've you know, spent time training in the military in ROTC for three years in college. And I am a martial artist. I love martial arts. I love all kinds of martial arts. I love archery and sword fighting. I love physical combat, even though in some sense, at least I'm a pacifist. But anyways, it is not about fighting with those people that were bullying me on the schoolyard. I knew that those were kids and I knew that deep down they weren't bad people. So it wasn't really with them that I had my issue. They were representatives of a cultural force that was bullying me. Anyways, Haley, that was my answer. Got it. So it sounds like the typical school environment just wasn't actually, this is a gross synthesis, which I trust mm -hmm. you to allow, but I think it actually just didn't get to values at all, is what it yes. sounds like, where you very well, much- values, values need to exist within a story. Yeah, they do. So that, that's actually really interesting. Like the idea that this different classical education, because it brought in narrative, introduced you to a world of dramatic values that animated you so fully when you had previously just been in, in a different world. That makes sense to me. So you were going to talk about Gorgias and onboarding. And okay. yeah. All right. I actually think we should start with the main note. We should actually start with the updating and then go to the onboarding. And okay. I need you guys to trust me on that. So okay. the main paradox. So this is one of the first things Mr. H taught me. One of the first books we read was the main And in the main you got to imagine 
we're all in Athens, city of wisdom, the New York city of ancient Greece, very worldly place filled with worldly people. They're very practical and they're all sitting around and they're having a conversation. They're pondering the meaning of things. And somebody asks a question, everyone's weighing in and everyone's got an opinion. And the question everyone's asking is, how would you define learning and how do people learn? And everybody was sharing different theories of learning. This person thought learning, you know, this is how people learn. And this person thought this is how people learn. And, you know, we've all been in conversations like this. I'm sure everyone in the audience has as well. You know, conversations where people are discussing the education problem in America. How do we solve education in the United States? What's the problem with schools and the school system? And if it's not in America, it's in your country, wherever your country is. You know, everyone has a different theory about why, again, going back to the Napoleon thing, why everybody isn't as well raised, why all parents don't raise their children equally well, why all schools don't educate their students equally well, why all students aren't equally successful. It's at the root of inequality. Learning is at the root of inequality. It's at the root of all performance issues and all happiness. So people that are miserable versus not, or people that are successful versus not, there's some relationship between your experience of life, both the actual external world and the way you operate and show up in it and the way you interpret it and process it that has to do with learning itself. And everybody was going around. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And unlike me, Socrates is good at listening. And so he waited until the end. And then he did a magic trick. What was the magic trick? <laughs> a literal miracle. Socrates was a magician. You should know that about Socrates. And I'm going to teach you the magic trick and now you will be able to do it. Are you ready, audience, ladies and gentlemen? Or as one of my partners likes to say, Lord, ladies and lady lords of the audience, this was the magic trick. He summoned over a child, a small child, a little boy. Hello, little boy, come here. And the little boy was a servant boy. So he was serving everybody, maybe some water. Hey, come here, come here. Has anybody taught you geometry? No. Has anybody taught you anything about mathematics? No. Have you been to school? No. Because he was a poor child and everybody knew it. His parents couldn't afford to send him to school. He had no education. And he knew, he knew even though he was a little boy, that he was missing out. He wanted to learn. He was curious. Socrates had noticed something, had noticed something about the way the boy was constantly being distracted by the conversation, maybe spilling some water. And he noticed there was that glimmer of a desire to learn. And that he, he knew this boy wouldn't get a chance. And he said, boy, would you like to learn something? And the boy said, yes. He said, okay, we're going to play a game. Draw this symbol in the sand. And he did the symbol of the number one. And the boy drew that symbol with his finger in the sand. And he said, boy, this is the symbol for the number one. Do you see that I have one finger raised? Yes. Okay. You understand this concept? One. Yes. Okay. Erase it. Wipe it off the sand. And the child did. And it was gone. I said, child, have you destroyed the number one? The child thought for a moment. He said, no, it's an idea. And he said, yes. And child, where is that idea? Does it have a physical shape? Does it have a body? Is it matter and energy? Is it in the physical world? And the child thought, no. And Socrates says, where is it? The child said, I don't know. 
That was the first miracle. Then there was another miracle. But Artie, let me just stop. Isn't that miracle so good? Oh my God, it's so good. It's unbelievably good. But I'm not going to tell you the second miracle until we pause for a minute because it's too intense. Yes, that is an incredible miracle. What I like about it is that he engaged the young person to help them increase their confidence that they knew something. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels. Shifting someone's perspective on themselves is part of what makes conversation really, really interesting. And that's something I would locate in the learning or the updating bucket. So that's what I find magical about it. Yes. Yeah. And Socrates had style. He never told the child what to say. He only asked questions, something I'm still trying to learn. Oh, cool. Yeah. And also Socrates knew how to slow down and listen. Also, I'm still trying to learn. Socrates is a great teacher, taught by example. Lastly, the actual thing he was teaching, I just want to point this out to all the New Yorkers in the audience, that is everyone in the audience, all of you who are practical and don't believe in magic, like the magic Socrates just did that I just taught you. Even if you don't believe in anything spiritual at all, and that's totally okay, if you believe in numbers, you believe in a metaphysical world because numbers are concepts. And where do concepts exist? And if you try to psychologize it and say they just exist in my mind, I could say, well, then then destroy me. Destroy me and destroy my mind. Has the, have the numbers cease to exist? Destroy all humans and all minds. Have numbers cease to exist? Is it possible to destroy numbers by destroying anything in the physical material world? And we could debate that, and I'd be happy to have that conversation with you. All you need to do is message me on LinkedIn. But the point is, that's a strong argument. And Socrates was able to, in just a very few questions and through a very simple exercise, demonstrate the profundity of that argument, which is the suggestion that there is a metaphysical world where at least numbers exist there. And then that leads to other questions like what if that world does exist, what else exists there? And what is the relationship between that reality, the metaphysical reality where numbers exist and and this reality here in space-time, the universe? And that is a lot of Socratic thought is actually about that line of inquiry. So I've now given you an introduction to the theory of the forms indirectly, but not directly. Directly is a different different exercise for a different time. All right. Haley, can I do the second magic trick real quick? Yeah. Okay. All right. The second matter trick is even better than the first because it'll become a perfect conclusion for us to tie off this first episode. And I just want to remind the audience that our jumping off point for this conversation was the following suggestion, the following thesis, which you can accept, reject, or modify. But we would like to humbly suggest to you the following. Trust is the foundation of all wealth. And following through on great conversations is the foundation of all trust. One more time. Trust is the foundation of all wealth and following through on great conversations is the foundation of all trust. And I believe, and again, this whole conversational meandering, many paths that Haley and I have gone down, many forks in the road have led us to this miracle by Socrates, which I could not have picked a more, this is not planned. Could not have picked a more perfect way to end the conversation to tie it all back. Here we go. 
So now he turns to his cynical audience and they were misogynists at the time. So it was probably only men sitting around and all these patricians, they were all wealthy nobles. That's why they had the time and the luxury to philosophize and sit around doing nothing because they were, they were investors. They were venture capitalists and private equity fund owners and hedge fund owners. And they had their money making money for them. They didn't need to spend their time making money. They didn't need to spend time with Socrates hanging out. And he said, okay, we've been having this discussion about theories of learning and how children learn. And I'm going to demonstrate to you my thesis, which is that I don't believe that learning exists. I don't believe anyone learns anything in the sense of realizing something new. What you call learning is merely remembering. Nemocene, the Greek goddess of memory, shall guide this child to remember something this child has never been taught. The Pythagorean theorem. Child, are you Pythagoras reborn? Uh. No. Do you even know who Pythagoras was? No. No, Socrates, I don't. Gentlemen, would you all agree that this is an impossible feat? Nods. If this child demonstrates to us, to your satisfaction, to the satisfaction of the least of you, the most unbelieving of you, Will you all donate to his education? Yes, it's nothing for them. They all say yes, fine. All right. His scholarship is on the line now. He leans in. Child, just remember. Child, draw a triangle like this in the sand. Do it now. Go. Good. Now tell me the relationship between these sides. Hmm. What can you guess what the relationship, the length of this side and this side is to that side? No? Okay. Hmm. Well, how might we get there? I wonder. What would happen if you drew squares? And on and on and on until he drew squares around each side and then put the squares together and then realized A squared plus B squared equals. C squared. There was a moment of silence. The audience was dumbfounded when by asking question after question after question after question patiently and not very many questions, but slowly because Socrates was patient and he knew what he was doing. And he understood the Pythagorean theorem very well. Through simply questions alone, the child discovered as if for the first time, as if he was Pythagoras himself, as if he had asked himself the questions that had led to the original discovery of the genius, the audience burst out in applause. They had never seen anything like it. Is this child Pythagoras himself? Is this child Pythagoras? Has anyone shown him anything? Does he have any advantages? None. And that's how Socrates funded his first scholarship. That is so cool. Well, the first here is I love that we've been talking about learning and I love the idea that conversation facilitates discovery and the frame that learning simply is discovery. And I think that's really profound. And then I suppose what it would relate back to is like great conversations being the foundation of all trust there. What's so interesting about this character, this little boy is he must, he has to ask himself the questions, right? 
as he's like responding to Socrates and his prompts. And so, and he has to look inward for those to be available to him and to also look outward, right. For those to be available to him. So he's, you know, observing self, observing world, and that's an act of trust itself. So the idea that this little boy is in a process of self-inquiry as guided by Socrates and that that act of trust of entering genuinely into inquiry, trusting oneself to see the world for real, trusting the world to be discernible to you, trusting the person asking you questions to be asking good questions, and then to follow that thread until you arrive at something that I would call like apparent profundity, right? Like to everyone that seems like knowledge that's not accessible, it seems erudite and handed down through the elites. And for that to be something that turns out to be like common knowledge or accessible to an every man with no education is really beautiful. It is really beautiful. And we are all that every man and that stranger. And part of what Socrates, and the reason why I think Socrates is messianic, and he's the sort of you know messianic figure that even a cynical New Yorker can get behind, because after all, you know we don't associate Socrates with religion, except for the fact that he was <laughs> building upon Hellenic myth. But anyways, like Joseph Campbell joked, myths are other people's religions. So, anyways, Socrates was this incredible figure, this incredible human being, but he was a historical figure like Napoleon. And yeah, like that type of work is good work. We can recognize that there's something humanitarian about it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been willing to die for it. And he wouldn't have been so generous with his time. He was on a mission to enlighten people. And even enlightenment, the irony of of most modern cynicism is that it originates in the historical moment of the enlightenment. And so the irony of our demystification is that it's somehow connected with the fact that we smugly think that we already are enlightened and we don't need to be enlightened anymore. But anyways, our sentence, trust is the foundation of all wealth and following through on great conversations is the foundation of all trust. Trust is the foundation of all wealth. So Socrates gave the child a scholarship. What do we instantly associate scholarships with? He gave the child what? Indirectly. Money. Wealth. Yes. Yeah. Because wealth not only pays for education, education pays for wealth. It is ultimately the skill of the mind. This is why we say the pen is mightier than the sword. And this is why debate is a form of fencing. And I love fencing. Yeah. Because we are using the sword of our mind. And the sword of our mind is what makes skyscrapers rise. If anything is going to solve all the problems of the world today, poverty, inequality, environmental destruction, it's going to be the mind. The mind, that is what he was teaching. And, you know, the incredible thing is that even without the scholarship, in that one moment, the moment of teaching the boy how to use questions to maybe even the next step for the boy would be able to ask questions by imagining what Socrates would ask him if Socrates was there. Because now Socrates is in the boy's mind. The boy can go anywhere and Socrates isn't there. And he can still have Professor Socrates in his mind asking him questions. And he can still deduce and remember, remember everything, rediscover everything. And so that was 
an incredible gift of wealth. But yes, it required trust. As you've mentioned, trust in Socrates and what he was doing, but also the boy had to trust himself and Socrates had to trust the boy. Otherwise the magic trick wouldn't have worked. Yep. I have a lot of thoughts at the moment. I'd like to suggest that we end by asking anything you learned today and then any new fresh questions on your mind. Oh my gosh. I learned so much. Pick one thing, one thing you learned today. Well, you reminded me of my own story, which I'm very grateful for, like where all this started in my own life. So easy to forget your own story and how all of the moments of the past have led you to this moment, including the moments of anguish of like being a kid going through early trauma and feeling really misunderstood and really like there's something weird or wrong with me and a total loner and not cool at all. And I don't know why I'm being excluded. And I don't, you know, I don't, it's like the story of the ugly duckling. Like what's, what's wrong with me. And thanks for reminding me of that. And things I would like to learn is I actually want to do word studies, etymological studies on the word question and the word discovery and on the word letters Word letters. Yeah. Interesting. I think the most, the thing that gave me the most to chew on, I suppose, is also the thing that I learned. I imagine I've heard that story, the Socrates and the the little boy of Pythagorean story, but I don't think I've heard it for a really long time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think we're kind of in a moment historically where the world doesn't feel like something we can trust. You think about like sources, things you read on the internet, things you see, it's hard to know what's real. And the idea, just being grounded back in the idea that by asking questions, one might arrive at any kind of universal that's apparent to you is kind of stunning. But I just haven't, I haven't thought so concretely about the power of being led through well-structured questions in a long time. And one of the things that came up for me that we actually, we didn't talk about that much. We didn't really get into dialectic, which is something I'd love to hear you talk about. I'm surprised we didn't end up taking that turn at some point in the conversation, Mm -hmm. but I was looking at in preparation for this conversation, sort of the structure of conversations, like what are they, how do they work? And something I really anchored to is what conversations change you and which conversations don't. Right. And you know, that's sort of this onboarding, updating, expanding thing for me is like, that is different kinds of change that I think are really interesting that come through conversation. But one of the questions I'm left with, both as a result of that research and a result of this conversation is who are your conversation partners? And that also feels sort of there in Olivia's quote. It's like, who do you talk to? Who do you let ask you questions? Does trust not emerge from average conversations? Like this quote is not you know, all trust emerges, trust is wealth and trust emerges from mediocre conversations or like, you know, comment walls on the internet or perfunctory exchanges of information. So that's what's left with me is like, you know, why great conversations versus some other kind mm-hmm. of conversation as being mm-hmm. important for trust. And mm-hmm. I think it's because someone's participating in that intimate change process with you, that dwelling mm-hmm. at, you know, back to the etymology. Mm-hmm. And then there's also this piece of like, who do you choose to enter that space with? Mm-hmm. Who do you not? I'm glad you chose. Glad you chose this with me now. Thank you. Yep. I didn't mean to interrupt. Were you done? Oh, you're fine. That was it. I was just yeah. sharing 
the last so much yeah so the greek god arachne the spider arachnid the spider was there's a whole myth there which we don't have time to tell of the weaver the weaver of webs she was the best weaver and she challenged a goddess she shouldn't have challenged to a contest and won and therefore got turned into a spider (laughs) but of simulation theory which is the things that something that people who think a lot about virtual reality and ai think about today which is that what if this is all a simulation what if there is a giant spider that is weaving the web of your life because don't you even if you know even if you're a cynical new yorker like me don't you have these moments where you're like life is a little bit stranger than fiction like maybe this is all randomness and chaos but isn't it just a little bit dramatic sort of weird how things just sort of feel kind of almost like they're meant to happen when they happen. People come into your life at certain times, people leave. Well, what, what's up with that? Why does it have this like eerily dramatic quality? And why do myths, and when you read all the myths, the hero with a thousand faces, Joseph Campbell, you start to realize, huh, they all start to sound similar, all these stories. And like when you play with something a little bit ridiculous, like a children's thing, like tarot cards, like hmm, hmm, these archetypes, they keep showing up in life, you know, once you notice them. Like, why is that? Why is that? And so I just want to say that the web we've woven, the web of this conversation mm-hmm. has so many threads. And if you give me the honor and the pleasure of having a second conversation with you, and you're not bored of this podcast, yet, and Olivia isn't either, and we keep doing it, we keep producing it, I have the stamina to walk with you. Because almost anywhere we pick back up, we're playing the Wikipedia game again. All points are center on Wikipedia. There's no core or periphery in a certain sense because the periphery leads back to the core and the core leads back to the periphery. And so regardless of where we start off again, we can be back in the same conversation. And so let's go back to this. Well, let me, let me just answer your question. There are so many things you taught me that are threads I'd want to pull. Fake PhD. That's genius. I want as many fake PhDs as possible, especially in actualization. You said a bunch of words like actualization, like meaning, passion, purpose, belonging, agency. We could do etymological word studies on all those words and be utterly dumbfounded by what we find because there's so much in in some of these words. You talked about youth development and the maturation experience, the rite of passage of turning dreams into reality, which is a milestone. And the audacious thought of what if we can scale that experience? You talked about the things that are important, but that are hard to quantify. Yep. Like this conversation itself. How many units of learning have you had, audience? When you tell your friends, oh, I listened to a podcast for an hour. If they ask you, how many learning dollars did you get? You don't have an answer to that. That's an example of something that Haley was talking about. We talked about these four aspects of learning and of, of conversations that Haley mentioned. Onboarding, updating, dialectic, and expansion, and the relationship of all of those to each other. And then we talked about, we did an etymology study on conversations. We talked about the Gorgias, the Meno, Napoleon, and Alexander, and Hegel. There's so much that we talked about that we don't have time to talk about more today because it's time for me to answer my door soon. And I just want to close with a conversation about trust. The person at my door is the person who gave me my phone back, a stranger last Wednesday night. No way. I didn't have any cash to give him. And I said, can I trust you? Here's my address. Find me. And he did. 
And I found him and I paid him what I could pay him at the time from that ATM that was there when he Whoa. found me the next day. So 24, less than 24 hours later, I had my phone back. And now he's coming for an appointment, which is our appointment to heal my relationship with strangers. Because if I could have blind trust in a stranger, like this man here, whose name is Celine, then I can fulfill these lines of the Tao Te Ching. She trusts people who are trustworthy. She also trusts people who aren't trustworthy. This is true trust. She is good to people who are good. She is good to people who aren't good. This is true goodness. And so trust wow. is the foundation of all wealth because all handshakes, which precede all deals and all contracts, are based on trust in other human beings. And that is why if you master trust through mastering conversations, you have New Yorkers, ladies and gentlemen, the foundations of all wealth. I got to go. Goodbye. Bye, Francis. Hey, thanks for tuning into Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. If you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.